Yeah, okay. It's on. السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد so um, last week we began with the tafsir of, of surah al-adiyat and inshallah ta'ala this week we're going to continue from where we left off last week and surah al-adiyat as we mentioned last week is a surah that Many of the scholars consider to be a Mecca surah, a surah that was revealed before the hijrah of the Prophet ﷺ from Mecca to Medina. And others from amongst them said that it was a Madani surah. <clears throat> and we mentioned the, the difference of opinion that existed amongst the scholars and we went into some length concerning why that, that difference of opinion existed. And as I mentioned last week that it is one of the most beneficial aspects of knowledge when you're studying any science whether it's fiqh or tafsir or hadith or any other science to try to understand and grasp the essence of the difference of opinion and the reason why and from which that the difference of opinion stems why does it exist in the first place why is there a difference of opinion on that issue and usually there is a bona fide real reason behind it there is a either a genuine um, misunderstanding a genuine ambiguity maybe about something there or there is like contradicting or what seem to apparently be contradicting narrations or statements uh, texts and so on so we said as it pertains to the difference of opinion of surah al-adiyat it being makki or madani even though the majority of the scholars were of the opinion that it was makki but you have statements from scholars and companions of the prophet وسلم, that indicate that it was madani uh, and that is because of the difference of opinion amongst them concerning the tafsir of the opening few verses of Suratul Adiyat. And we actually mentioned uh, the tafsir of the first verse as well. And that difference of opinion and the differences amongst the scholars of tafsir concerning the first verse of Suratul Adiyat is primarily over the issue of it being referring to when Allah says that it's either referring to horses that are fighting in war war horses or that it's referring to camels from amongst the scholars of tafsir there is a good body of scholars who were of the opinion that it refers to horses performing jihad in war on the battlefield from amongst those who said that opinion were the companion Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah and a number of his students, Ikrima, Mujahid, and then other scholars like Al-Dahak uh, and Abu Aliya and so on. They said that it refers to horses. And that is the opinion that many of the scholars of Tafsir, uh, not least of whom were Imam Al-Tabari and Ibn Kathir and, and many others, it is actually the predominant opinion amongst the authors of Tafsir and the compilers of Tafsir and the, the scholars who have works in Tafsir their predominant opinion is that it refers to, or the opinion that they chose and that they supported was that it refers to horses. And then you have those other scholars and companions from amongst them, Ali radiallahu anhu, Abdullah bin Mas'ud, 
uh, عن, Ubaid ibn Umair, uh, the famous Tabi'i and so on, they said that it refers to camels and not only just any camels but the camels are the people that the pilgrims use whilst performing Hajj, whilst performing pilgrimage to the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And what was interesting as we said last week about those two opinions is that both of them, whether you take the opinion of it being horses or whether you take the opinion of it being, uh, of it being camels, both of them specify the use of those animals in terms that are uh, pleasing to Allah and in contexts of worship. So it's not just any horse, it's not just horses that you ride on or horses that you keep for racing or horses that you just keep for whatever reason. It is a horse that is used, prepared and then used in battle. And likewise for the camels, it's not just the camel that you use, that you may eat its meat or that you use to transport yourself or some possessions of yours or other types of uses that camels had, especially during that time of the early period of Islam. But rather it is a camel that is used in the worship of Allah Azza wa and to bring a person closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is an important aspect and it is a great benefit that we take from this surah. All of us have possessions, we have cars, we have bikes, we have different things that Allah Azza has given to us that we own. And what Allah Azza is praising is not just the aspect of having those blessings or having those uh, owning those possessions, but how you use them in a way that is pleasing to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. And we said that Dabha refers to it refers to the panting of the horses, and we mentioned the statements of. Those scholars that said that it must be horses because only horses and dogs pant and then other scholars came along and said no, that doesn't make sense. There are other animals that pant just as horses pant and camels have a type of pant as well. And we said that you know Ibn Ashur for example said the same thing and that the uh, if it's got a ha at the end, dabha, then it's referring, referring to horses. But if it's got an ayn at the end, dabha, then it's referring to uh, camels and so on. Uh, and that is a difference of opinion that is of linguistic nature. But one thing that it is important to remember is that the companions of the Prophet ﷺ, because those companions or from amongst those scholars who said that the verse refers to camels, refers to camels, are senior companions. Ali and Abdullah bin Mas'ud are two of the greatest, most senior, most knowledgeable of the companions of the Prophet ﷺ. The fact that they choose our opinion that dabha can refer to in Arabic language, camels and the breathing noises that they make as they as they go into a run and as they move at, at high speed, that's something therefore which has a basis basis in the Arabic language because the Arabic of the time of the companions was far stronger than the Arabic used by uh, you know like scholars who came much later, and the usage of those words and the context of them and how they're understood would have been far greater than the usage of those words in our time or significantly later times after the companion. So, you know, it is a linguistic uh, issue of debate. However, it is important to remember that you have senior personalities, senior people on both sides of that argument. We said that many of the scholars, they chose the opinion that it refers to horses and some of the scholars combined between the two and said that it may well refer to horses in the first instance, but it doesn't mean that it is exclusive to horses and the general position of ours in tafsir since the beginning of QP and the methodology of the scholars that's mentioned by a number of them like Ibn Taymiyyah and others in terms of the principles of tafsir is that when you have opposing 
or what seemingly are opposing opinions and views in tafsir, if you can combine between them, reconcile between them, then that is something which you should do. And much of the tafsir of the Salah, especially in the early times, is what is called tafsir al-tanawwa. It is a tafsir of different expressions, but meaning the same thing. They just express or give different examples, and, and but in essence, they are referring to the same thing. And that's why we will see now, as we move on to verses 2 and 3 and 4, and we move through, through this surah, even those scholars who primarily supported that position of it being horses that are being referred to, like Ibn Kathir, uh, uh, Ibn, uh, uh, Imam al-Tabari, rahimahullah ta'ala, and others, even they, as they go ahead, will give you that sense of actually it can refer to a horse whilst it's doing this and a camel whilst it's doing that to show that the horses that are mentioned in, in the first verse and Allah knows best is not by way of exclusivity. It's not only referring to horses, but it can refer to other than horses as well and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. However, as we said, primarily it is referring to horses. And I want to mention the statement of Ibn al-Qayyim ta'ala which we mentioned briefly last week but we were kind of towards the end of our time. Ibn al-Qayyim, ta'ala, he says that Allah Azza wa Jal mentions in Surah Al-Adiyat, in the first verse, Wal-Adiyati that he mentions the horses, the war horses that are used on the battlefield. It is the most fitting wasf or attribute of what Allah Azza wa Jal is referring to by way of example and not by way of exclusivity as we just mentioned a short while ago. He said, why? Because the horses that are used on the battlefield in jihad are the best types of animals that a person can have. And it is that, that aspect of that horse and what it's performing and what it's doing and what it's contributing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is taking an oath by. That is what Allah azza wa is taking an oath by. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is honoring that animal. Because as we said, when Allah azza wa takes an oath by anything in the Quran, there is honor for that creation of Allah that Allah has taken an oath by. And it is a lesson for us, obviously, as well, to uh, to heed what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes an oath by. Allah azza wa taking an oath by horses, what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is praising about them is this aspect of them being on the battlefield as they charge the enemy. And he says, rahimahullah, he goes on to say, and that is from the greatest of Allah's signs and from the greatest of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's wisdom in creating this animal that it can be used in a way that is good and beneficial and brings that person closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, and, and his statement is, is pretty long uh, concerning his tafsir of this verse. But basically, what he's, what he's referring to there and, what he's, and the point that I wanted to stress and why I wanted to repeat his statement, rahimahullah ta'ala, is that issue of using the uh, skills, the talents, the the possessions, the blessings that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given to us and using them in a way that is pleasing to Allah azza wa and it is that aspect of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is praising within the Quran in this first verse of Surah Al-Adiyat. Moving on to verse number two, uh, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says فَالْمُورِيَاتِ قَدْحَا فَالْمُورِيَاتِ قَدْحَا and I'm going to just bring up the translation, if I if I can. If Nav stops messing around my screen, thank you. Uh, when Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says, "Fal muriyati 
Al-Muriyati Qadha, Allah Azza wa Jal is referring to. He says, and they strike sparks with their hooves. They strike sparks with their hooves. They strike sparks with their hooves. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in verse number two, uh, if we just give us a second, folks, just one second. This is the problem when you're live and you don't have someone with you. I'm trying to bring up the translation on the laptop. Here you are. Okay, just one second, folks. Because I'd rather give you the the translation of a number of the scholars of, of the, the translators that have come. <coughs> anyway, we'll do that slightly later. Uh, Allah Azza wa says, فَالْمُورِيَاتِ قَدْحَا and they strike sparks with their hooves. Again, this is one of those word, wordings of the Quran that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what we would call gharibul Quran, from the unfamiliar words of the Quran. So al-adiyat, as we said, al-adiyat refers to the racing of the horses. That's what it's referring to, right? The racing of the horses primarily. And so when the horses are racing, that word al-adi doesn't refer to a specific animal. It's an attribute of how they are running and how they are moving. At the same time, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, uh, it's referring to their breathing. And then when Allah azza wa jal says, qadha, So, Abdul Halim says, And they strike sparks with their hooves. Muhsin Khan said, Striking sparks of fire. Pictol, striking sparks of fire. Sahih International, and the producers of sparks striking. And Mufti Taqi Uthmani, then those that create sparks by striking their hooves on the stones. And as we said last week, all of the translators generally of the Quran, or at least the ones that I have before me, have chosen the opinion or the tafsir of the first verse as being referring to horses. And as we've said a number of times before, essentially what a translator is doing is choosing an opinion of tafsir if there are multiple opinions and giving you the translation of that opinion. So now when we come on to verse number two, striking sparks with their hooves, right? Bearing in mind that in the first verse, we have those body of scholars that say it's referring to horses and a body of scholars that say that it's referring to camels. How do they now reconcile right between this? What does فَالْمُورِيَاتِ قَدْحَ mean? Abu Hayyan al-Andalusi, rahimahullah ta'ala, the famous scholar of tafsir and the famous linguist, his tafsir is well known for its linguistic aspects and its gram- uh, grammatical aspects and its aspects of eloquence. He says, the word al-Ira' which is the essence of the word فَالْمُورِيَاتِ the, the original verb الْإِرَاء He said إِخْرَاجُ nar. It is for sparks or fire to, to be produced. And he says and that's produced when an animal strikes its hooves on the ground at high speed and because it's hitting a solid rock, as it moves off it, you see sparks coming from its hooves. لِسَقِّ بَعْضِ الْحِجَارَةِ بَعْضًا because of its speed and because it is constantly striking stones and those stones are striking other pebbles or those pebbles are striking other pebbles and therefore they produce those sparks. That is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is referring to. And as we said in the first verse, when Allah says, وَالْعَادِيَاتِ is referring to the sprinting nature of those animals and how fast they can move. And both a horse, but especially a war horse, has extreme speed. But even a camel is known to have speed and that's why you know, there were kingdoms of the past, as we know through history, 
that would use camels in war as well. Camels are an animal that are used in war as well to attack the enemy. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is referring to those animals, in the first verse he's referring to their speed of movement anyway. Then in the second verse Allah Azza wa Jal is re-emphasizing that but this time in a slightly different way and that is that they are striking the, the, uh, the ground with such force and speed that they are bringing out sparks from their hooves. And Imam Al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala he said فَالْمُورِيَاتِ قَدْحَا And they strike sparks with their hooves. That's the translation. He says The scholars of Tafsir differed concerning the explanation of the interpretation of this verse. Some of them said, It is the horse that as it runs, it creates sparks from its hooves. And then he mentions this opinion as being the opinion of a number of scholars, and it's not unsurprising that they are the same scholars who generally said in the first verse that it's referring to horses. So he mentions this as being the opinion of Qatada, ta'ala, the famous student of Anas ibn Malik and many of the companions, Ikrima, rahimahullah, the famous student of Abdullah ibn Abbas and Ata' rahimahullah, another famous student of Ibn Abbas and Al-Dahak, also a famous scholar of that era in Tafsir. And this was the opinion that was then supported by Ibn Kathir in his Tafsir, Al-Imam al-Shawkani, in his Tafsir al-Sa'di, in his Tafsir al-Suyuti, in Jalalain, in his Tafsir, uh, or al-Mahalli, in his Tafsir, the the two, the two Jalalains in the Tafsir and others. They said that it's referring to the horses and that's the translation that we have. As it runs, it strikes the ground with speed, with force and sparks emanate from its hooves. Imam al-Tabri rahimahullah then mentions a second opinion. And this is interesting, these other opinions that are now going to come out. And this is the opinion that he attributes as being one of the statements of Qatada rahimahullah ta'ala. He said rather what it's referring to is the threat of the horses as they bring about war. And what he's essentially referring to there is, and, and it will be made clearer as we go on to the other opinions that he mentions concerning the tafsir of this verse. But what he's referring to essentially there is how horses are a sign of war. So not only that the horses actually attack, right, because that's what they're doing in the first opinion, they are attacking and sparks are emanating from their hooves. But in the second opinion, he says that they are the animals that are a show of war. So when people take out their horses and they put their armor on them and they get them ready and they ready themselves and they and they and they uh, sit upon their horses, that's a sign of war. So classically, in olden times, medieval times, when people would do that, that is a sign that they are readying themselves for war. That you put on your battle armor. Remember, in those days, you know, there's not always a standing army, especially in Arabia. There's not a standing army that people are soldiers and army and they, they have barracks and that's where they live. They're usually ordinary people. Quraysh, the Muslims, uh, and others from amongst the Arabian Peninsula. So when they get ready for war, what do they do? It's everyone that they go into their houses, they put on their war armor, their body armor, uh, or the armor that they use for war, and they come out ready in that attire within that suit of armor that they are now ready to go and fight for war. He says that's another opinion that it refers to. And the first two, those two opinions are, on Allah knows best, similar, as it seems to me, in, in what they are referring to. And then he says, and others said, and he reports this as being the opinion of Abdullah ibn Abbas and Mujahid. And remember that um, not every 
that Imam At-Tabri, especially in his tafsir, with every opinion that he mentions generally, he gives his isnad, the chain of narrators, that from him back to uh, those companions or those scholars who gave those opinions. And Imam At-Tabri, as we mentioned in that QP special that we did on his life and his tafsir, passed away in the year 310 of the Hijrah, 310 of the Hijrah. So he's fairly early, but not so early as well. There will always be a few people, a good few people between himself and between the generation of the companions, radiallahu anhum. He says, Ibn Abbas al-Mujahid, one of their opinions that is reported from them in this verse, he says, ذلك, that the meaning of al It is the plotting and planning of men. The plotting and planning of men. They all seem to accept, and Allah knows best, that the meaning of al-muriyati qadha is that, is that uh, sparks are being struck. Fires, referring to fire and sparks that are being struck. But then they differ as to what it's referring to. In terms of, is it a literal sparking of fire from the hooves of the war horses as they run towards battle? Or is it a metaphorical fire? Right? Because one of the things uh, you know, that we say, for example, about the plotting of people and spreading rumors and lies is that they spread like wildfire. Right? That's a very common statement in English. It's common in other languages as well. That fire has a literal sense, obviously, but it has a metaphorical meaning as well, which can mean corruption and evil and how quickly something spreads that has devastating effects even though it is, uh, you know, it is something that's like a word or a rumor or a lie or a slander or, a, or someone backbiting and so on. So this is now the metaphorical kind of understanding of this verse, that it's not literal fire, but it means fire in the sense of the plotting of men. When men come together and they plot to attack someone or to overtake someone or to conquer someone's land, that's what it's referring to. بَلْ مَعْنَا ذَلِكَ مَكْرُ الرِّجَالِ He says, رَحِمَهُ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى وَقَالَ آخَرُونَ And others said, هِيَ الْأَلْسِنَةِ it's referring to the tongue, referring to people's statements and speech. And he reports that as being the opinion of Ta'ala. And again, they are very similar points, uh, the, second, the third and fourth opinion, that it is the plotting of people or the words that come out from them that can ignite war and start battles between nations and people simply because of words that are being said, right? And because of you know, a perceived insult or, you know, a declaration of war that's made or some type of anger or slight that's perceived. And so people fall into or people go into war amongst themselves. And what you will find between those four opinions, whether it's the actual horses or the horses as, as a symbol of war being readied for war or the plotting and planning of men, meaning leaders and generals and so on, or their words and their speech and their tongues, all of them are still referring to the concept of war. That's what they're referring to. So they're referring to them as the concept of war and how they can all ignite fire and sparks each one in a slightly different respect. وَقَالَ آخَرُونَ He says, and others said, and this is the opinion of Ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anna, because now we're going to go back to the opinion of the first verse being referring to camels. So all of the four opinions of the second verse that we've mentioned so far, the horses, the preparation of war, the plotting of people, the, the speech, all that's still kind of referring to horses and war horses and war in general. But the opinion of camels and it being used for hajj, this is now the opinion of Ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu wa qala akharun. Hiya al-ibilu hina tasiru tansifu bimanasimiha al-hasa. He says that it is referring to Ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu, that it's referring to the camels as they travel and journey 
and as they strike their hooves on the ground and the pebbles that they hit as they go towards Hajj or Umrah, as they go towards the pilgrimage of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So after mentioning those five opinions, so we have five in total concerning the meaning of فَالْمُورِيَاتِ قَدْحَ The first one is referring to horses as they strike, as they go for war. Number two, horses as they're being prepared as a symbol of war. Number three, مَكْرُ rijal, the plotting of people. Number four, الْأَلْسِنَة Tongues and verbal speech and what people say. And number five is referring to the camels as they journey towards Hajj. And Imam Al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala then says, after mentioning all of that, وَأَوْلَى الْأَقْوَالِ فِي ذَلِكَ بِالصَّوَابِ And the correct opinion from those views that we have just mentioned and yuqal is to say, إِنَّ اللَّهَ تَعَالَى ذِكْرُهُ أَقْسَمَ بِالْمُورِيَاتِ الَّتِي تُولِ النَّارُ قَدْحَ That Allah Azza wa takes an oath by the muriyat, those that strike sparks and fire from their hooves. And he says, and, pe- and horses do that literally with their hooves. He says people do that when they plot and fight with one another. The tongue does that because of what it says. And also animals can do that as they rush towards preparing for war. So he says, so Allah doesn't mention one aspect, doesn't specify one aspect over another, but rather everything that brings about that sense of spreading fire and evil and corruption in whichever form can therefore be um, be included within the tafsir of this verse. So what he's saying then, and this is what we mentioned at the beginning of this lesson, that Imam al-Tabri, even though it seems that in the first verse he favoured and gave strength and gave more uh, more credence to the opinion that Wal-Adiyati Dabha is referring to horses in war. Now as he moves towards the tafsir of the rest of this surah, and we will see this as we continue and progress, but in verse number two now, he's saying, but it's not just exclusive to them. It can refer to, um, you know, it can refer not just to horses as they literally come, but it can refer to other types of fire being uh, emanating from, or literal types of fire, in terms of the fire of the horses and their hooves, but also a figurative fire in terms of how speech can spread like wildfire and people's plotting and planning can create also fire and destruction as well. But he doesn't mention within those opinions that he gives and Allah Azza wa knows best, he doesn't really go and touch much upon the opinion of it being referring to the camels, that it's referring to the camels as they go towards the Hajj. So he still doesn't go towards that opinion, but now he's making his own tafsir much wider than just the literal meaning of horses literally is expanding within that position and that's because as you see there are a number of uh, opinions amongst the scholars of tafsir a number of statements from amongst them and therefore what Imam al-Tabri is doing as we said is a common methodology amongst the scholars of tafsir is that he's trying to bring some reconciliation amongst those views and opinions of the scholars of tafsir Al-Imam Ibn Al-Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala whose statement we mentioned in Wal-Adiyati Dabha and he supports uh, the position of it being referring to horses in war and how Allah Azza wa Jal is taking an oath by those animals because of what they're doing and how Allah Azza wa Jal is praising their action of theirs. He says here, وَقَالَ قَتَادَ He says, and Qatada, and he mentions the opinions that are, that are known amongst the, the scholars of Tafsir uh, that we just mentioned. He says, he gives the opinion of Qatada and the opinion of Ikrimah and the opinion of 
of others, that it's referring to the plotting of people, or that it's referring to uh, the tongues and speech and so on. He mentions all of those opinions and he says they are weak. He says that it is distant and far fetched from the meaning of the verse. And he says, and more further, or further from this, even more, is the opinion of Mujahid that it's referring to the plotting of people. He says, because all of this, what Allah is referring to, is that it, it is far from what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala means because the first verse is very specific as it referring to horses. So why then in the second verse are we going to people and ideas and speech and so on? Why are we sticking with the actual meaning? So he says in his uh, conclusion to this, so if we say that it's referring to primarily horses, but indirectly it can refer to other forms of spreading uh, fire, for example, speech, for example, he says, then that is okay. But if you actually say that the meaning of the verse is that it's referring to plotting and planning and speech and so on, he says that that is a far-fetched opinion in his view, rahimahullah ta'ala. And that does seem to be um, the case and Allah Azza wa knows best, that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is referring to something primarily, if you say that it's referring to horses, then that context continues throughout the verses of the surah. But it doesn't mean that at the same time as Ibn Qayyim says that indirectly other forms of the same thing can be included as well indirectly, not primarily. So the primarily the verse is still referring to the horses as they strike the ground, as, as, as sparks come from their hooves as they run towards battle. But at the same time, yes, there are other types of fire that can also be spread and spread like wildfire, such as people's speech, rumors, lies, uh, slandering and so on right? and we have examples of this not only throughout history in general in the time that we live in uh, all of this misinformation this false news that's coming around about what's you know what it is about everything that's that's happening in the world and so now you see all of these social media sites YouTube Facebook a lot under a lot of pressure to ensure that the information that's been given out to to the public in the time of pandemic when people if they're bombarded with false information, will believe it and they will act upon it because of how difficult the situation is. Those companies are now under a lot of pressure to make sure that the information that's at the front, forefront, that people have easy access to, that comes up first in their searches and so on, is information that is um, that is real and authentic, that it is information that is sanctioned officially by governments and health organizations and so on. And we have within our own tradition the example of the slander of our mother Aisha radiallahu anha as you know the famous incident that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then speaks about in Surah An-Nur as well when he reveals verses concerning her innocence. Aisha radiallahu anha, her story shows how something can spread like wildfire within a community, within a society, within a city, within amongst people when a false rumor is spread, how it can catch and spread like wildfire. And it is from the nature of people, for many people, to be interested in seeing the downfall of others and to be happy at seeing that. And so therefore, many people unwittingly and wittingly become part of that type of machinery that spreads that type of misinformation, those lies and those slanders. So yes, it includes that indirectly. And it includes other types of, of, of things that, that can be mentioned, but primarily the verse of the Quran is speaking about the horses as they strike the ground. And then also another reason for that, uh, that it's referring to the horses and Allah knows best, is because these verses are mentioned in the context of praise and honor. 
So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is praising these horses of war. He's taking an oath by them. So now if the second verse all of a sudden is something negative, plotting and planning and, and speech that can spread like wildfire and that starts war and so on, it's almost as if the context of the speech now has gone from something praiseworthy and honorable in Islam to something which is actually not so praiseworthy, not so honorable, not so noble within our own tradition. And so Allah doesn't take an oath by, uh, by such things, especially in this type of context, and Allah knows best. And so that is why Ibn Qayyim Taala he speaks about those opinions of those scholars, and he says that they are secondary, that they are indirect references, that they are not something that should primarily be understood from this verse of the Quran, when Allah says, فَالْمُورِيَاتِ قَدْحَ Moving on to the third verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then says, فَالْمُغِيرَاتِ subha." Abdul Halim in his translation he says, who make dawn raids. So we have the war horses that are panting as they run, striking the ground and, and sparks coming from their hooves. فَالْمُغِيرَاتِ subha who make dawn raids. Mufti Taqi Uthmani says, then those that invade at morning, Yusuf Ali and push home the charge in the morning, Sahih International and the chargers at dawn, Muhsin Khan and scouring to the raid at dawn, who make dawn raids. So just sticking with our standard translation of Professor Abdul Halim, who make dawn raids. Ibn Ashur, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, the famous scholar of the uh, of recent times in his in his tafsir. He says, Wal-Mughirat is referring to the action of the horses. And the word Agara or Igara tutlaku ala ghazwil jayshi daran wa huwa ashharu itlaqiha. It refers to an army as it attacks, as it raids. And it is the most famous usage of this word. And Ibn Abu Hayyan, ta'ala, the scholar of tafsir that we mentioned a short while ago, he says, it means that they charge their enemy in the early morning in the dawn. And those scholars who would say, and we'll come on to this slide later, but those scholars who say that it's referring to camels instead of horses, then he says that the Arabs say concerning horses, agara ida ada jarya, that the, the, the camels, if they are running and racing towards something, it is also called Agar. And he says that it would refer to the morning of the 10th of Dhul Hijjah. And we'll mention this um, you know, slightly, in slightly more detail shortly because that is the opinion again of Ibn Mas'ud radiallahu an. And Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala, he says concerning this verse, The scholars of tafsir, they differed concerning the interpretation of this verse, فَقَالَ بَعْضُهُمْ Some of them said, the meaning of فَالْمُغِيرَاتِ subha is فَالْمُغِيرَاتُ subhan عَلَىٰ عُدُوِّهَا عَلَانِيَةً That they come and they charge and they raid the enemy in the morning openly. And he says, this is the opinion of Abdullah ibn Abbas رضي الله عنهما العكرمة المجاهد القتادة الحسن البصري رحمهم الله تعالى أجمعين One thing that it's Interesting to see here in the verse is that Allah says the word subh. And the word subh refers to the early mornings, referring to the morning period. So after Fajr onwards, that is subh, right? That's referring to the morning. And Allah takes an oath by the morning in other places in the Quran when he says, for example, 
So Allah takes an oath by the morning. And we know generally within our sunnah, our tradition, our religion, that the morning part of the day is something which is a blessed time. The Prophet said in the hadith, My ummah has been blessed in its early morning. And that's why it was the practice of the Prophet after he would pray Fajr to stay in his place and to make dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to remember Allah and make dua until the sun had risen. That is a blessed time of the morning. And for people to come out early and to use their morning wisely, it is something which gives them barakah in the time and they usually you achieve more and you attain more. And this is not even from just experience and just, just general uh, you know, experience of life that you're able to achieve and attain more in the early morning period. If you're up early, you're up at 6, 7 a.m. and then you work solid till 12, 1, even though it's only half the day, it's something which you feel like you've achieved a lot and you still have much of the day left. As opposed to someone who wakes up at 10, 10, 30, 11 a.m., they have a very slow start to the day, their day doesn't really get into full swing until after midday, 12, 1 p.m., and now they start. Therefore, five hours is already evening, 5, 6 p.m. before they've achieved much and now you're coming to night time and you generally want to wind down and relax and so on. And that circle is a difficult circle that doesn't allow you to achieve much. Whereas the, uh, the practice of the Prophet ﷺ, the companions, the early Muslims, especially and even today, many Muslims across the world, especially in places where uh, you know, they may have more of a, a, a sedentary lifestyle, a, a lifestyle that refers to, re relies on agriculture, living in villages and so on. You will see that they're up very early, sometimes before Fajr, and they stay awake after Fajr, and then they have a nap during the day if they need one. They have a siesta, they'll sleep for half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour, and then they're up and they're re-energized and they continue with their day. And that is an Islamic principle and it's something which not only does the Sunnah of the Prophet support, it's something which Allah is also mentions in the Quran, like this verse. He praises them when they use their time wisely early in the morning, a time that is praised by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's why we then have within our religion the Adhkaru Sabah, right? Those morning remembrances. When you wake up after Fajr to remember Allah to make those du'as, to ask Allah for Allah's protection, to praise Allah, to send salat and salam upon the Prophet وسلم, and so on and so forth. That is something which is extremely beneficial. It energizes the body and it allows you to attack the morning and to make full use of it. I remember when we were students in the Islamic University of Medina, our day, uh, our school day would start, our university day uh, rather would start at 7.30 a.m. 7.30 a.m. would be our first class and we would generally finish around between 12 and 1 p.m. And that was amazing because you're up early and it's difficult to wake up so early sometimes, especially if you have a late night or you're tired and so on. But to wake up early, by the time you've, you've finished your day, your studying day, official, like the official studying day, it's only dhuhr time. And then after dhuhr you can rest a short while and then after Asr, you have time to go to the Haram, you have time to attend other lectures and benefit and read Quran and memorize and study and revise. Whereas one of the problems that we have is when you finish your day so late already, you don't find that you have the time to actually use uh, or you don't have much spare time to use for other pursuits. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about these horses and these armies as they attack and make dawn raids. And then he mentions the second opinion 
الإمام الطبري does وقال آخرون others said عني بذلك الإبل that it's referring to the camels so again going back to that that first verse and the second opinion amongst those scholars Ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu anhu and others who said that these verses are not referring to war horses but rather towards camels as they make the hajj right? and as they perform hajj he says referring to them uh, referring to this, this group of scholars it is referring to the camels as they leave from Muzdalifa, min jam, he says, ila mina. And jam is one of the words or the names of Muzdalifa. It is known as al jam as well. Right? And that's because people gather there. Jam means to gather. People gather there, they sleep there. That's where, uh, that's where, that's where they, um, that's where they stay. And then they go towards mina. So he's referring to basically the morning of the tenth, the morning of the day of Eid. So the people who go for Hajj. On the 8th, which is the day of Tarwi, the 8th of Dhul Hijjah will be in Mina. They will spend the night there. In the morning, then they will leave and they will go towards Arafah, but the day of Arafah doesn't begin until Dhuhr. So they have all of that time of the morning from Fajr onwards to get towards Arafah. Once they arrive in Arafah, they stay in Arafah until the sun sets, until Maghrib time, but they don't pray Maghrib there. They go on towards Muzdarifa. There they pray Maghrib and Isha and they spend the night there. After Fajr, that is when they leave and they go back towards um, towards Mina, which is now the 10th of the Hijjah. It is the day of Eid. It is the day of Eid for everyone else in the world, for the day of the people people making Hajj. It is the day of Nahr, the day of sacrifice. They leave and they go towards Mina. Now, generally, the, the advice of the Prophet ﷺ, because remember, we're speaking about speed. We're speaking about them, the, these animals, even if it is camels, according to that opinion, they're moving fast so that when they strike the ground, sparks are lit from their hooves. And as they're moving, Allah is saying that they're raiding the dawn, right? They're moving fast towards the dawn or in the dawn time, in the, in the early morning period. So if they're running and they're going fast, we generally know from the sunnah of the Prophet that in his farewell hajj, as people were moving from one place to another, from one location to another, from Mina to Arafah, Arafah to Muzdalifah, Muzdalifah back to Mina, the Prophet would tell them to slow down. And he would tell them not to hurry and not to hasten because there were 100,000 plus companions making that farewell hajj with the Prophet And as we know today, when now the numbers are in the millions and you have those people, all of them rushing towards the same place at the same time in the same direction, all trying to get there to stone first, to make tawaf, to make sa'i, whatever it may be, you have crushes and you have stampedes and you have people jostling with one another and pushing and shoving and pulling and all of those issues that are associated with that. The Prophet ﷺ would tell people to settle down and to be calm and not to rush. And that's why you have the statements of the scholars who came after him. Some of the scholars is reported, for example, Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, Ta'ala and others, they would say as people were leaving, especially that morning period, and why are they referring to this particular morning? Why isn't it from the morning of the 9th when people are going from Mina to Arafah? Why is it the 10th morning that they're referring to? Because that is the morning that people are most likely to rush. They're most likely to leave in a hurry. In the morning of the 9th, as people are going to Arafah, you have the whole morning. And Arafah doesn't start until Dhuhr time. So you have plenty of people taking their time, 
people leaving early, people leaving late, people leaving mid-morning, and people can make their time, their way there generally. But on the morning of the 10th, people are in a hurry, because not only on that day do you have to stone and cut your hair, and the sacrifice, and tawaf, and sa'i, you have a number of actions, it has the most rites of hajj on that day, but at the same time, people are eager to get out of the state of ihram. They've been now in the state of ihram for nearly around 48 hours, especially for men, especially you know, for those of us that aren't used to wearing that ihram, uh, those, those ihram garments, people are just dying to get out of the ihram. They want to go and shower, go back into their clothes and so on. It is something which just people want to come out of the state because it is, and it, as, it, as it is meant to be, restricted. You can't use perfume, you can't trim your hair, you can't use you know, this and that. And so it becomes difficult for people after a period of time. So people are eager to leave and people want to go. And so Umar ibn Abdul Aziz used to say to people, slow down, calm down. For the one who wins today is not the one who gets to Mina first, from Muzdalifa to Mina. Not the one who gets to Mina first. The one who wins today is the one that Allah has forgiven. It's not about who gets there first, who comes out of Ihram first, who showers first. Who, it is about those that Allah has forgiven as they left the plain of Arafah and as they spent that night in Muzdalifa, and as they now go back towards Mina, if Allah has forgiven you, you've won. Even if you're the last one to arrive in Mina. And if Allah hasn't forgiven you, you've lost, even if you're the first one to arrive in Mina. And that is an amazing statement of his, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. So it's referring to that morning of the 10th. So if the Prophet is telling people to slow down, be calm, how do we understand that in light of these verses? And what the scholars who hold that opinion will say, and some of the scholars of Tafsir have commented on this, is that what it's referring to is that part of the journey from Mina, from Muzdalifa rather, to Mina, in which the Prophet ﷺ would actually speed up. There is a portion of that journey where the Prophet ﷺ used to speed up and he would run. Or he would, on his camel, on his riding animal, he would make it run and jog and come out of the area. And that is the area that is known as Wadi Muhassar, the Valley of Muhassar. And that is the place where Allah ﷻ, and it is just before Mina, just before you come into Mina, it is the place where Allah destroyed the army of the elephants as we mentioned when we discussed at some detail and in some detail the tafsir of Surah Al-Feel. It is said that that is the place where Allah destroyed the army of the elephants. And so it is a place of adab, a place of punishment. And the Prophet ﷺ generally in his sunnah didn't like for people to lag behind or to, to, uh, to idle around in places where Allah had caused his punishment to descend. And so you have the same when the Prophet ﷺ on the way to Tabuk, towards the end of his life, went to past Madain Salih, the area where the people of Salih السلام, the tribe of Thamud used to live, the nation of Thamud, and how the Prophet ﷺ didn't like them hanging around or taking from the water from the wells and so on, because it is the place where Allah's punishment came, and therefore it is a place that is cursed. That area between Mina and Muzdarifa, which is no longer a valley because it's all roads and so on, and it is not a great distance, it is a short distance, but during that particular section of that journey, the Prophet ﷺ actually hurried and encouraged the companions to hurry, which goes against every other directive, guidance given by the Prophet ﷺ that people should be calm and slow and considerate as they move around those locations. In this place, know if you can, in a safe way, 
move as quickly as you can through this area. And so the scholars said that's the position that the scholars of tafsir who hold the opinion of it being camels performing hajj, that is what they're referring to as those camels rush towards or past that area of Wadi Muhassar. They strike the ground with their hooves and sparks come and that's the part of the morning that they are attacking in terms of the way that they are running. And Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala then says again, reconciling, combining between those opinions He says and the strongest of those opinions that are correct is that Allah Azza wa takes an oath by the dawn raid and he didn't mention one type of raid as opposed to another but rather he mentioned everything that can be done in that spirit within the period of the morning and that's why uh, and that's why uh, he says that it is an oath that Allah Azza wa takes blessing or honoring that part of the day, the morning, and what people do in terms of coming closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala during that period of time. And we have in our sharia, in our tradition, a number of actions that a person can perform during that morning period. Not least of them is the duha prayer. The duha prayer, which has an amazing reward and which the Prophet would perform regularly and which he would encourage others, companions, to perform as well as is mentioned in the hadith of Abu Hurairah radiyallahu an. So that is Falmughirati Subha. Allah Azza wa then goes on to say فَأَثَرْنَ بِهِ نَقْعَ Allah Azza wa says raising a cloud of dust. Raising a cloud of dust. Muhsin Khan and raise the dust in clouds Mufti Taqi Uthman then raised at the same time a trail of dust. Sahih International staring up there by clouds of dust. Um, Yusuf Ali and raised the dust in clouds the while. So raising a cloud of dust. Qatada rahimahullah ta'ala said fi qawlihi fa'atharna bihi naqa'a that the word naqa'a is referring to dust. It's referring to dust. So as these animals are running and rushing and they're striking the ground, and obviously the ground of the Arabian Peninsula, Mecca, Medina, that area is sand. And so as you strike it and you hit it, dry sand, you get clouds of dust. And that is what is being referred to as those animals rush through that part of land as they, if there is horses that they attack, and if it is the camels as they rush through. But it's referring to the cloud or the dust of cloud, the dusts, the clouds of dust rather, that are emanating from those animals as they hurry. And the same thing is the opinion that is mentioned of Ibn Abbas that he said that it's referring to dust. And Imam al-Bukhari ta'ala, in his tafsir, in his sahih, says the same thing. He says, that they are raising clouds of dust. And Imam Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani al-Hafidh Ibn Hajar ta'ala, in his sharh, his explanation of Sahih al-Bukhari, he says that they this verse as Imam al-Bukhari said refers to the raising of dust and he says and this was the opinion of Abu Ubaidah from the scholars of Arabic language so as the horses rush and they hurry they strike the ground the dry dust comes up in clouds of dust and that is what they do and that is what Allah Azza wa is referring to Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala says refers to the clouds of dust that are being raised as those animals rush through. 
Al-Ghubar, he says that it is Turab, it is the sand or the dust or the ground rather, the sand as it is being lifted into the air and raising those clouds of dust. And he says, um, he says that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is therefore showing also by this that Allah Azza wa is in a way praising not only the action, not only the animals that are performing the action, uh, not only the time of the morning that is also mentioned in verse number 3, but now Allah Azza wa is referring to the place as well. So you have the animals, their actions, you have, uh, the animals itself that Allah praises in verse number 1, number 2, their actions, which is the sparks coming from them. Number 3, in verse number 3, the time of the day that uh, that's being referred to, which is the morning that Allah is praising. And now Allah Azza wa is praising the area, the place, because the clouds of dust obviously are in that place where those animals are charging, meaning the battlefield as they come towards attacking the enemy. He says, and this was the opinion of Ata' and Ikrimah and Ibn Mas'ud and Al-Hasan, Rahimahumullahu Ta'ala Ajma'een, Rahimahumullahu Ta'ala Ajma'een. And so those scholars who, for example, would have said that it's referring to camels of that opinion, they will say the same thing as those animals, those camels are rushing towards Mina and they're hurrying and they're striking the ground and it's done in the morning. They obviously raise clouds of dust as well in their wake as they leave from one place to another. Uh, Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah ta'ala, he says, It is the place that is left full of dust, whether that be in Hajj or whether that be on the battlefield. So we said before Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah ta'ala, was of the opinion, or he chose and gave credence to the opinion of it referring to horses. In the first verse, that that is the stronger opinion, and Allah knows best. But even he now has not backtracked on that, but he has reconciled either way that it's referring to the dust, the clouds of dust that are being raised, whether that be on Hajj or whether that be on the battlefield. On the battlefield or whether that be on the, on the, uh, during the Hajj as people are performing Hajj. And Allah Azza wa Jal then says, فَوَسَطْنَ بِهِ جَمْعًا and plunging into the mist of the enemy. Muhsin Khan penetrating forthwith as one into the mist of the foe. Sahih International arriving thereby in the center collectively. Mufti Taqi then enter at the same time into the center of the opposing host. And plunging into the mist of the enemy is the tafsir that I have. Uh, but this is a, a, a verse that will take some time to make the tafsir of. So I think inshallah ta'ala today we will stop there at the end of verse number 4. And Fawasat Nabi Jam'a is still concerning that opening passage of Surah Adiyat. So from verses 1 to 5 Allah Azza wa Jal is taking an oath by those horses and he's taking an oath by their actions and what they achieve and what they accomplish. And then Allah Azza wa Jal will speak in verse 6 about the uh, about the the main purpose of the surah, what Allah Azza wa Jal is bringing our attention to, and that is the ungratefulness of man, and how they reject the blessings of Allah Azza wa Jal, and how they neglect them, and how they refuse to thank Allah Subhanahu wa Taala for the many blessings that He has bestowed upon them. And so that's something, inshallah Taala, which we will do next week, bi'idnillahi Taala. So if there's, let me just see if there's any questions.
Kudoki. So, you mentioned stories spreading on the internet. How can an elderly woman deal with a 23-year-old son who is engrossed in these conspiracy theories and doesn't see anything wrong with always being out despite the lockdown? I think the, the, the issue there is not so much about the conspiracy theories, but about them understanding the principles of Islam as it relates to these types of issues of, of, of pandemics and so on. And the fact that it's being reported on a daily basis, you know, like in the UK, I think today we had over 700 deaths uh, related to COVID-19 and I don't know how many um, thousands now, some like 40, 50, 60,000 that are confirmed cases of COVID-19. That shows that it's not a conspiracy when you have doctors and nurses and, and it's not even something which you have to necessarily listen to the news and believe or listen to uh, you know, read on, on, on some news, in some newspaper or follow some um, some politician, you can contact doctors that you know, nurses that you know, as you know, I think I'm sure many of us have friends, relatives, people within our communities that work in the medical profession, pharmacists, doctors, nurses, specialists in these areas that we can speak to and that will tell us firsthand that this isn't just some hype, it's not just some conspiracy theory it's not just something out there it is a reality that they are facing on a daily basis and sometimes when you're stuck in your home or you're stuck in a, a small area with just your friends you don't really notice the bigger picture because it's not something which strikes you every day especially if Allah has blessed you as being those one of those people that doesn't have anyone in your family or in your, in your immediate circle of acquaintances that has been affected by this disease However, for those people that are facing this on a real basis, people that we know that have died from it, people that we personally know that have died from it, and people who have been affected by it and have become severely ill, some of them at home and some of them hospitalized and some of them in intensive care, may Allah hasten their shifa and their cure. And then doctors and emergency staff and, and people on the front line who are at the very front of dealing with this epidemic and actually providing care for those people and we've spoken to them firsthand and they say that it is a reality then that should be something which is enough and in the USA you have plenty of scholars and imams and doctors who will attest to that and then there is an issue of understanding that um, the role that we play and the sin that we have if even unwittingly unintentionally we do something to um, spread this disease where we, we could have stopped it or we do something which, even though it may have been unintentional, we do in terms of exacerbating the issue of how we are accountable for that. Because even though it wasn't our intention to do so, we didn't take the advice that was out there. And we can't claim ignorance because there is no ignorance on this issue. It, is, has, it has become so widely known and so widely, um, you know, so widely, uh, um, so widely publicized that it's not possible for a person to say that they weren't aware. For a person to ignore it then is not ignorance, it is simply that they are becoming ignorant of the issue, they refuse to acknowledge it. So I ask Allah Azza wa Jal that He guides, and, and it's not just in the USA, I, I, uh, we have people here in the UK that are doing the same thing, you know, young, young brothers and young sisters who are just still out on the streets and driving around together and going around life as it's normal and as if there's nothing happening and no care for anyone in the world. We ask Allah Azza wa Jal that He guides all of them, that Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala brings them to uh, what is good and beneficial for them and for their families and their communities. With regards to the group of scholars that the first verse should be taken metaphorically, how do they explain the rest of the other verses when there is a physical description of the morning and dust? So we mentioned this in some detail, right? So those scholars who 
say that they are referring to things metaphorically in terms of uh, you know the second verse, not the first verse, but the second verse referring to rumors and so on. They're still referring to the aspects of war. So for them it is still war. And then when they go on to verses 3 and 4, they go back to the tafsir of it being verses. Just for verse 2, they're saying that the fire that's, that Allah is, which is the sparks that Allah is referring to, sparks don't have to be just literal sparks. They can be sparks of war in terms of speech, sparks of war in terms of the war people plan and plot these things and so on. That's what they're referring to. So they're not moving away from the general tafsir of it being uh, horses or camels. Rather, what they're doing is they're expanding on one issue of the horses of war and then coming back to the, the general tafsir of that and Allah knows best. If you are memorizing Quran, do you have to do sujood and ayahs in the Quran? If you are reading it to a sheikh and a teacher, um, it is recommended that you do so. So for example, if you come to a sheikh to read the Quran for ijazah, the sheikh himself would normally tell you to make, uh, to make sujood. If it's however you memorizing and learning and even reading to a teacher, but you're going to read to him multiple times over and over again uh, for your hifth and for your memorization, then it's not necessarily necessary to do so. And some scholars prefer that you do it once the first time and then that you don't have to repeat it every time you repeat that verse. Another scholar said no because this is in maqam al-ta'aleem, it is something which you're doing to uh, to refer to the issue of um, of memorizing the Qur'an. It is difficult to do if every time you're reading and learning a verse, every time you repeat it, you have to make sajda. That is something which is difficult to do and obviously there are many young children and many young students who memorize the Qur'an and come across those verses and then it is also for them to do as well. Finally, any ad- uh, this is the final question, any advice on authenticity of doing additional ibadah on the ninth night of the 15th of this month, i.e. tonight? Not that I am aware of. Anything authentic concerning this and Allah knows best. There is some, um, the, the verse, the hadith, to the best of my knowledge, that speak about the virtues of the 15th of Sha'ban are weak. And the hadith that speak about some specific acts of worship being done on at this particular night, not because of the virtue of the night of Sha'ban, the middle of Sha'ban, but just because of some additional ibadah to be done on this night, there is a difference of opinion amongst the scholars as concerning the authenticity or lack thereof of those narrations. And the strongest of those opinions, and Allah knows best, is that they are weak narrations as well. And so this is not a night that there is anything particularly special on. But we know generally that the month of Sha'ban is something in which the Prophet ﷺ would generally fast more during this month than he would fast more than any other month. And I think the narration in Nasa'i gives, I think it's in Nasa'i that the Prophet ﷺ said that Allah that the actions of a person are raised to Allah in the year on this, uh, in this month of Sha'ban, in this month of Sha'ban in general. It doesn't give a specific date or night but generally in the month of Sha'ban and that is authentic and that is why the Prophet ﷺ would fast more in this month he would fast more in preparation for the month of Ramadan and he would fast more because it is the month in which our yearly actions are taken up to Allah so we have actions that are taken to Allah on Mondays and Thursdays and the Prophet ﷺ would like to fast and love to fast on those days but also generally in the month of Sha'ban and Allah knows best and with that inshallah ta'ala we conclude today's lesson and I hope that everyone is keeping well and your families. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala keep you all safe and protect you all from harm. And may Allah azza wa jal cure those from amongst us who are ill. And may Allah azza wa jal have mercy upon our deceased. Hada wa sallallahu ala nabina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.